Hello and welcome to Laid Back Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. I'm Michael, a former wine sales associate as well as vineyard worker. And I am Gabe. I am WSCT Level 3 certified in wine, and I am an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. And today we're going to be talking about a very complex topic, natural wine. You don't say. It's, yeah, the more research that both of us have done on this has been a journey of frustration, learning, <laughs> inspiration, and ultimately, uh, actually, it's just generated a lot of uh, questions. Well, there's some answers. There are some answers. Uh, there are also some more questions to be asked just about feasibility and things like that. Yeah. So we're going to be talking basically about what natural wine is, why it is, the philosophy and thoughts behind it, as well as how it expresses itself in both practice and as a product. And our own opinions yes. on all of the above. Which we are both very opinionated. I think we've spent the last <laughs> half hour just going back and forth on our personal thoughts on this topic. I mean, I think anyone that's listened to us for any amount of time has probably been able to tell that we are quite opinionated. Yeah, I mean, but this is a little different because this is not just about, oh, well, I think that this wine being composed in this such way is better than this wine. And yeah. this is like attitudes and mm. you know uh practices that yeah. have in cultural dif- trends yeah, yeah. Cult- this is because this is a very uh touchy topic um <laughs> despite being only one percent of the wine that is produced in the world so what is natural wine natural wine is a holistic approach to wine that has the structural elements of considering organic farming uh, sustainable farming, and low interventionist winemaking. It can include biodynamics, but does not always. Yeah. Um, and typically will also have a f- general philosophy of environmental friendliness. So why did this come about? A lot of this is likely a reaction to climate change by winemakers and who I would consider intelligent investors, Yeah. Uh, as well as a general trend towards health among consumers yeah there's also the element and i've spoken on this very briefly before but mid last century the wine world particularly with the rise of um, like superstar critics and psalms like robert parker listen to our wine scores episode if you want Mm. to learn more about him but a consequence of these very loud and prominent voices was a homogenization of a lot of wine And a lot of people also attribute a burning out, I guess, of the general public's palate on the same wine being presented to them in different packaging over and over and over again. Even within the realm of, oh, well, you have old world and new world, we still are looking at a lot of the same grape varietals. I mean, if you were to plant Syrah in California and plant Syrah in Australia, you could make a wine that would be pretty indistinguishable to the average drinker from both of those places, which is, in my opinion not a good thing (laughs) you know i I believe very strongly in terroir and being able to identify the place and and the environment that made a wine yeah and also maybe different species of grapes actually have some Mm -hmm. not only uh diversity for the consumer's actual enjoyment but also some diversity just for the simple environmental impact well and protecting the culture of where these grapes originated from like georgia where winemaking itself has seemed to originate from according to our current archaeological record at least Mm -hmm. 
there are tons of grapes in Georgia that are still used to this day, but are kind of endangered because of how homogenized the quote-unquote international varietals uh, have become and taken over a lot of these more indigenous species. And a lot of these sentiments are being shared by the consuming population as well, even yeah. though, especially in the U.S., we're, we're currently experiencing a very large and long economic downturn. <laughs> More people in our generation are conscientious of the environment. They're conscientious yeah. of those trends, and they're willing to spend more money on things that they believe are going to have a better impact. Exactly. So it's, you know, you had the older generations where it was about, you know, always saving money and everything. Mm -hmm. But now that we recognize that impact, the additional consideration is now a thing that's instilled inside of this newer generation of buyers. Also, who among us in the millennial generation is actually saving money? <laughs> no, exactly. No, none of us are because we're convinced that the world is burning, which, you know, 75% of genetic diversity in agriculture has disappeared. 35% of farmland turned to desert between 1950 and 1990. And uh, uh, I think it was, what, $400 billion a year is done in damage because of uh, topsoil just running off mm -hmm. because well, of scorched earth. Let's also not forget that a certain tech billionaire is buying up all the farmland in the United States as we speak. So Wait a minute, what? Oh, uh, yeah. Bill Gates is uh, buying out farmland. And to be clear, I'm not trying to promote any like, conspiracy theories about that or whatever. No, just that, that, that's just a fact that yeah. he is purchasing up farmland at I mean, a quite would, alarming rate. That would be public knowledge. Yeah. So. Oh, no, no. It's very readily. You can find that just by a Google search. Dear Lord. Just be careful of uh, who you actually listen to, because a lot of people try to spin that into, again, conspiracy theories that have no grounding in what's actually motivating these purchases. Dear Lord. Anyway. So <laughs> disinformation's real. Don't listen to it. <laughs> so, so knowing these trends and having this new environment of awareness, we find that the industry has been growing with systems and technologies developed the long-term environmental effects and to a lesser extent the direct effect on human health not being as considered within the development of those technologies. Yeah. Uh, they're not accounted for in their design and understanding. So with that deficit recognized by those within the industry, there's been a much larger effort to attempt possible solutions, leading to many standards and values being put in place to keep the industry going while earnestly pursuing more responsible development. Because we already know that this is an established industry. Yes. Um, so it needs to be uh, according to this philosophy of wine, it needs to be shifted over mm -hmm. as gracefully as possible. Yeah. Although there are some people who are saying that because it's a luxury item, there is no excuse. Mm -hmm. A lot of this has developed into a culture with some strong sentiments, in some cases even asserting that the conventional practices of wine are harmful to the character of the product itself. Yeah. And a lot of these cultural elements are where Gabe and I start to depart from the uh, consideration of natural wine as a positive thing. Uh, well, I would temper that statement with an inherently good thing. And in, yeah, inherently good. Yes. And what we mean by that will become more apparent as we go on, because yeah. there's a difference between recognizing certain measurable impacts as opposed to the more opinionated, well, should this be yeah. the way that things the, are? The philosophy being justified by the philosophy. There is also a specific movement towards specific labeling on all ingredients that go into the wine, as mm -hmm. this tends to be more generally health conscious. 
And that is something that I personally agree with right off the bat. You don't have to wait until the next section to know that. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier, and I I hold a bit more of a neutral view on this because since wine is a chemical process, winemaking is chemistry, certain additives, certain things that can go into a wine don't always necessarily end up being in the final product because of how those chemicals interact with the other chemicals during the aging or fermentation process. So there is debate to be had there, but overall, I do think we do need a lot more transparent labeling practices, especially with how many additives are allowed, particularly in the United States. There are some natural wine enthusiasts that like to claim that it's hundreds and exaggerate. It's not hundreds, but I do think it is a little bit over a hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's around that mark in the United States. This, like, so there's there's a lot that's allowed to be in your wine that you probably have no idea about. And, and this, that, especially for people who are vegan mm-hmm. or for people with certain sensitivities, this can be a problem. Yeah. So I, I do think we need to be better about that. Um, but that all being said, why don't we start getting a little bit more specific yeah. and look into kind of what qualifies a wine to be considered a natural wine, at so, least by popular understanding. So a lot of this will also be expressed as labels. So mm-hmm. you'll have organic, sustainable, biodynamic, low intervention. But the only two that are really going to give you labels are going to be organic and sustainable. So with organic, this is in the attitude of purity within natural wines. And this is a lot of the time going to actually be referring to the amount of sulfur that's in something. But in general, it's, it's just also about, vineyard practice, particularly yeah. the pesticides that are and are not allowed to be you, used. You don't want synthetic products is, yes. is the yeah. main thing. Yeah, you're not spraying Roundup on your vines. So that's that's <laughs> Which just is a thing that happens in conventional winemaking, by the way. Yeah. Well, they put Roundup on the vines. They put it on the ground. Yeah. Completely destroys biogenetic diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's actually quite harmful in general. in general. There are yeah. a lot of studies. There's also a lot of lobbying from Roundup in order to hide all that. Yeah, because yeah. they're they're selling it en masse to farmers. It's a it's a lot of money. Yeah, but yeah, it has to do with non-synthesized products and also sulfur amounts, mm-hmm. which every label is going to be different on those standards. It mm-hmm. is hard to find those standards. Yeah, I mean even within. Because there are different organic labeling bodies in the United States. So, for example, Oregon has one, but then Virginia also has a Mm -hmm. a separate body that gives out organic certifications. I found out recently a vineyard uh, and winery called Loving Cup Mm -hmm. that is certified organic in Virginia. It's right outside of Charlottesville, apparently, and I really want to go now. They grow what to most people would be unconventional grapes. They grow a lot of hybrids because hybrids are the easiest to work with in our climate. Um, but that all being said, their sulfite labeling is different than what you would find in Oregon because of how the bodies treat sulfites. Interesting. What was the yeah. name of that winery again? Loving Cup. Loving Cup. Yes. We'll have to plan a trip. So yeah, knowing the labels themselves, basically if you want to try something and you are concerned, you're going to have to look it up. And even then, you're probably not going to be able to find any specifics regarding it. You may be able to call the producer if it's of particular importance to you, and that's going to be an easier way of kind of knowing whether or not it is organic by any definition. There are some labeling terms that are probably more informative than others. A lot of producers. So fun fact, sulfites are naturally occurring Mm -hmm. from the fermentation process itself. Yeah. So 
this is one of my knocks for natural wine enthusiasts overall is this fear mongering around sulfites. There's kind of this because a lot of natural wines are no sulfite or or low sulfite. There's this idea that like natural wines don't cause hangovers and that's just not true. Yeah. Um, drinking alcohol in any way, shape or form has the potential to give you a hangover. It's largely dependent on how much you drink. And also there are certain compounds in wines, particularly red wines, uh, histamines mm-hmm. that can contribute pretty heavily to your reaction to wine in general. But back to the sulfite labeling issue, no sulfite added is going to mean that there are sulfites in that wine, but they are the naturally occurring sulfites that I just referenced. And then there's zero sulfite wine, which has a certain parts per million. And again, that can vary across um, producers, but sometimes that means that sulfites have maybe been stripped out, but normally it's just that they're at an extremely low concentration in the wine. Again, normally just from whatever occurred naturally during the fermentation. There's also a key phrase that you're going to want to look for, uh, and that is made with organic grapes. Because Mm -hmm. if you see made with organic grapes, they won't add anything to the grapes themselves. So those will all be done with non-synthetic products, but they may still be bottling it with sulfites in order to just stabilize it for the shelf, Mm -hmm. which is one of the detriments of this is that if a wine has not been properly handled or is just meant for earlier drinking, the natural wines, the organic wines, they're not going to age well. They're Mm -hmm. very delicate. Yeah. There are some natural wines that are capable of aging yeah. um, just as much as any conventional wine. But uh, those are done very excellently. Yes, there, there's a lot of fine tuning that has to be done within the constraints of natural wine. So actually continuing on with the restraints of natural wine, some other defining features of this style is there is no acidification or capitalization allowed. Um, capitalization, if you haven't listened to, oh, Lord, what episode did we talk about that in? I know we've talked about it before, but regardless, capitalization is the process of adding sugar before fermentation starts to the grape must itself in order to bump up the alcohol of the final wine. Mm. It's not normally done to produce a sweet wine. In fact, it's illegal in a lot of places to use it that way or to use it at all. Neither of these are allowed because they're interfering with the natural process of the winemaking um, no chemical modifications, just kind of in general. So like adding synthetic tannins, um, well, not synthetic, but a common ingredient you will find in conventional wines is added tannin from normally some kind of bark or, or something. Uh, th- that is a common additive. So some of these, all of these really are not allowed in natural winemaking in theory. Michael talked about the organic and biodynamic vineyard theory behind a lot of these wines. Well, not biodynamic yet. Well, it, yeah, but it commonly you will see biodynamic yeah. within the natural wine realm. They're not interchangeable terms, so don't no. hear that. Um, so all normally... of all of these that we're discussing right now are elements within natural wine, but mm-hmm. they aren't necessarily defining natural wine. They're just yeah. thoughts. That are kind of pillars of it. Mm-hmm. Although biodynamics, I would argue, can be left out entirely. A brief definition of biodynamics is it's an attitude of nature enthusiasm, really. And it's focused on agricultural health, uh, movements of systems in living systems themselves. But the factors that are considered in farming are typically moon cycles, solar positioning, 
They will have incantations in some type, uh, in some situations as well as ritual substances. Cow this, intestines yeah. and a horn being planted in the vineyard is a thing. Yeah, you know this is this is more of a what looks like a religious practice than anything oh, else. The, the man, I don't remember his name, but the guy who thought up biodynamic agriculture was a contemporary of Aleister Crowley. So yeah, so you know this is more of a religion. Yeah, there is no quantifiable evidence that these things do anything. I could get behind it if they actually got some scientists out there in order to determine whether or not like lunar cycles or anything like that do anything for planting. But I, you know, this is something that I I would leave out entirely personally. Yeah, but the natural wine industry itself they love it. likes to promote it a lot. <laughs> they really love it. It was like the first thing that came up when I was looking at uh, this one set of wines that was like $100 a bottle. Yeah. So, but I guess my point is, if we're going to talk about kind of the pillars of natural wine, whether it's whether we think it's valid or not, I I'm more sympathetic to biodynamics than Michael is personally. But uh, it's you will find no sympathy here. (laughs) (laughs) Either way, um, it is it is aspect of natural wine on the whole. Now, my favorite aspect of natural wine, and I think this is also uh, Gabe's the the pillar that Gabe is most in agreement with is sustainability. Yeah. So this is an attitude of responsibility centered around three basic principles called the three E's, environmental soundness, economical feasibility, and social equality. So this is a very waste conscious way of thinking. It's very into regulating water and energy usage in order to be as sustainable as possible, as well as making sure that the impact on the environment itself is either a net zero or a positive. Mm-hmm. And there are so many labels that are region specific. I got through like eight of them before I was finally like, there is no possible way to memorize all of these. Well, that's so that's why a lot of people fall back on the organic and biodynamic labeling systems, because mm-hmm. those are much more sustainable than uh, conventional winemaking has been in the past several decades. There's a lot of debate around these sustainability certifications because like you said there's really no uniformity there's so many bodies that give these certifications some of them mean next to nothing some of them are very good so it it's something the natural wine industry really likes to promote but it can be difficult to know exactly what you're getting from bottle to bottle yeah what you're buying with your money it's good to research the producer well and the thing is is a lot of these they have language that will say oh well you need to meet these specific standards but we have different tiers Mm -hmm. of the standards that you have to meet with a yearly or a triannual uh audit and you need to be able to show not only where you are but how you're improving with a timeline in place and i do like that yeah it's just hard to know what the threshold is and mm-hmm. it's also kind of hard to know whether or not the audits themselves are being enacted for marketing purposes or for actual sustainability yeah so at its best i absolutely love this i think that this is probably one of the most necessary things within farming in general mm-hmm. simply because of the aforementioned problems that we've we've been having yeah but at the same time, if they aren't being as honest, you know, which isn't an excuse to ignore this as a possible solution, but if they aren't being as honest, it can just be used as a cheap marketing tool. It can, yeah. 
And I do, you know, there is the argument that people who cannot invest in these technologies should be given the chance to improve. Mm -hmm. And I do like that. Yeah. It's just, it needs to, it needs to be audited regularly so that we know that people actually are doing what they're saying that they're doing. Yeah. So along with the vineyard management, another big thing with natural winemaking is a very kind of, I want to say almost an aversion to a lot of the mechanical processes that are common Mm -hmm. in conventional vineyards. Within that more low interventionist line of thinking. Yeah. So a lot of these producers opt for hand harvesting over Mm -hmm. machine harvesting. Hand harvesting also gives you better grapes overall. The whole philosophy behind winemaking, once it gets into the winery, is very minimalist, very leave it alone. Again, think natural, which we'll get into my qualms with that term later on. Um, But just think like the natural process of winemaking with as little human intervention steps as possible to still make a good product. Native yeasts are very prominent in the natural wine world. You might also run into indigenous or wild yeast. They all mean the same thing. It's just whatever is occurring within their winery and on the skins of the grapes themselves are allowed to run their course instead of using the industrial strains that are very common in conventional winemaking. Which they use those industrial strains primarily, uh, well, in order to get specific flavors out of the grapes. But also, a lot of those yeast strains will do things very quickly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, The wild yeast strains, they take a bit longer, and that can allow for more opportunities for off flavors to develop. Yeah. Or on the flip side of that, though, more complexity in the wine in a good way. Yeah. Um, so I, I personally have always been a very big advocate for at least a native yeast cultivation. There's a little bit of a um, not a debate, but there's kind of two ways you can go about this. There's either you can just every year dump your grapes in whatever fermentation vessel you're using and wait and see what happens or So Early Mountain, I believe, if I remember correctly, here in Virginia does this. You can cultivate strains of yeast that are naturally occurring in your winery and on your grapes, but kind of monitor them for those yeasts that can produce off aromas or whatnot and cultivate the strains that you do want and still inoculate, but inoculate with those strains of yeast. So they are still native, but it's a little bit more of a step outside of purely the natural process. That's actually a little synergistic with one of the other practices, um, say selection with uh, locally grown rootstock that happens mm-hmm. yeah. on, on these vineyards. You have to be very careful with rootstock, though, with phylloxera, particularly in Europe. So a lot of the elements that we have within the expression of natural wines actually come from a study of farming, a different methodology called permaculture. Now, permaculture, it's basically the diametric opposite to the traditional scorched earth method of farming that's done in the mass industrial scale. So it's a combined word that means permanent sustainable agriculture. And this is a system of design that aims at self-sustaining and self-sufficient biodiversity. It employs natural balances between wildlife, plant life, and fungal life as well as their arrangement, in order to provide things like nitrogen fixing and other things that the plants will need, including pollination. So we're looking at planting fruit trees uh, for every hectare in order to get those wild yeasts to Mm -hmm. to come in. They're called aeroplankton. 
which mm-hmm. I find hilarious. Yeah. You're also looking at planting hedges in between certain areas in order to block off the bad fungus mm-hmm. from being able to just go downwind. Or certain pests even. Yeah. There are even weeds that are allowed to grow in the vineyard that help ward off certain root louses oh, and yeah. stuff like that. Even clover is nitrogen fixing for the plants. And so mm-hmm. there, there are these elements that are found within the soil that can actually help to boost the immune system of the vines themselves. Yeah. In order to give them the natural immunities that they would need that were being accounted for by things like pesticides. This is a very long-term thinking type of design. Yeah. This is a very low intervention type of design, and that's one of the reasons why they love it so much. They don't Mm -hmm. have to use as many fertilizers. They don't have to use as many pesticides. Yeah. Uh, And they also have a little bit more financial potential as well as uh, financial cushioning by having other products being grown. You know, you want natural local fruiting trees. You want natural local fruiting hedges. And one of the greatest signs of health that they'll actually say is immediately apparent is simply how many different species of butterflies you have. Yeah. So this is a completely different thought system towards farming in general, but specifically winemaking, mm-hmm. where you're encouraging competition in the vineyard as well as symbiosis. Yeah. So kind of moving back into the winery, uh, we also have, as a common fixture of natural wine making, very little to no fining and filtering, mm-hmm. which if you listen to our winemaking episode, I believe we went over these terms. But uh, if you haven't heard that, fining is basically the process of adding some kind of enzymatic bonding agent to draw certain proteins and other chemical compounds out of the solution of the wine as well as microbial uh organisms yeah to stabilize and clarify the wine filtering will also uh typically be very little or as little as is needed for stability in the wine i have always really liked very low filtered or unfiltered wines i think that they just have a little bit more interest to them in general there's a little bit more nuance and subtlety there that you don't always get from conventional heavily filtered wines, particularly your down to the bacterial filter wines. Also, commonly are not seeing a whole lot of oak in natural wine, at least new oak. There's a belief that oak will mask the flavors of the quote-unquote natural product of the wine itself. But what they will use is stainless steel and clay amphoras. Mm -hmm. Or concrete. Or concrete. Yeah. So we have avoiding oak. We are unfiltered and unfined. We, We know that we're using wild yeasts. Now, one of the reasons why this does require a lot of excellence to actually approach, though, is because if you do have those things get out of balance, you can have those high levels of histamines and tyramine inside of the wine as a result of not filtering or fining. That is something to be aware of when you are purchasing organic or natural wines. Yeah. Just be aware these are these are not going to be particularly shelf-stable in a lot of cases, again, but also they might actually have a greater chance of giving you a reaction. Mm-hmm. We're not saying don't explore it. We're just saying, be careful, be aware. If you have the predisposition yeah. to react to these things in the first place, yeah. Precisely. And histamines, that's, you know, that's going to show its face by, you know, your your skin's going to get flushed or red. It can cause some smooth muscle contraction. It dilates capillaries. 
So again, if you start experiencing those symptoms when you're trying any wine, really, maybe maybe try a different one. It could just be the histamines inside of it. They're also typically more present in red wines than white mm-hmm. wines. So you might have to give up red wine if you're finding that you just keep having strong reactions. Which, if you do have to do that, we are very sorry. Yes, I actually know a couple of people who have gone through this process as they've gotten older. That is another thing that can affect this, is getting older yeah. and becoming more sensitive over time. Uh, also, maybe try wines with a lower alcohol percentage, because yeah. a lot of the things in your body that will naturally uh, will deal with that, the enzymes in your body, can be a little subdued by by higher alcohol also, please, please, please drink water when you're drinking. Yes. Just in general. Oh, it doesn't yeah. have to be wine, everything. Please drink water. And uh, this is actually, in order to keep things stable and from developing those things, they'll typically allow for a little bit more acidity in natural wines mm-hmm. just to keep it as stable as possible. Yeah. There has been some debate along the existence of biogenic amines within wine, uh, specifically in the UK. What's a biogenic amine? So biogenic amines are those products of microbes. So when those microbes get out of whack, they end up producing off flavors, the histamines, the tyramine, also something called putrescine, which is the... Yeah. Mm, I wonder what that's like. That's what I want in my wine. And and that's actually the compound that is responsible for like rotting, rotting fish smell and stuff like that. It's a breakdown of amino acids, Mm -hmm. uh, very technically. They can produce not only off flavors and aromas, but also can cause, again, an allergic reaction, which is why there is actually a debate to treat them as allergens that must be listed on the label. No policies have been made so far, even in the UK, where this is being discussed the most. But they do have recommendations from the government that aren't really enforced. They're just recommendations so far. Well, with labeling for potential allergens, why don't we get into some labeling terms that you might run into in a natural wine shop or just in natural wines in general? Absolutely. So first and probably the most uh, common one that you will be more likely to come across is zero zero. Now, zero zero means zero sulfur and zero additives slash zero filtering. It's kind of the idea of zero intervention. So this extends to the vineyard. So like not doing chemical sprays and whatnot. And again, the zero sulfur being there's no sulfur in this wine. This is a very common thing you will see in wine to just kind of show how dedicated they are to no intervention in the wine, as can be managed and still have a viable product. We already talked about our yeasts. So again, native, indigenous, wild yeast, um, very common terms that all mean the same thing. It's just the naturally occurring yeast that this winery has in their vineyards and the winery itself. There are yeast even in your house right now. So you could have a native strain of <laughs> kitchen yeast that, that oh, you could Lord. make. Um, we also have spontaneous fermentation, which is a, a very common. And as soon as I explain what this is, it'll probably make sense as to why common fixture in natural wine. This is basically where there is no intervention on starting the fermentation or really stopping the fermentation either. I don't know if pre-fermentation soaks at a cool temperature count or don't for natural wine. I did not come across that in my research. 
Um, listen to particularly our white wine making episode if you want to know more about what a pre-fermentation soak is. But for a spontaneous fermentation, the idea is you are not inoculating with an industrial strain of yeast or anything else to start this fermentation. You're just letting it happen when it happens. That's basically it. We then have glau glau or glue glue. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it because I don't speak French, but uh, it means glug glug in English. If you do know how to pronounce those French words, please do so and give us the recording inside of our direct messages on either Instagram or Twitter at Laidback Lush. And go ahead and give us a little follow. Yes. Glau glau can also be referred to as vin de soif. There's a little bit of a distinction between these terms, but they basically mean the same thing. It's a style of wine within natural wine. It's very early drinking, very kind of unserious wine, table wine, think that kind of thing, where it's meant to just be drunk, to be refreshing, and not really meant to be thought about a whole mm. lot. Just, you know, a quaffable, very nice to drink wine. Then we have our whole cluster category, which is basically where you have whole bunches of grapes are put into the fermentation vessel. This is very common in natural winemaking. So stems and all are going into here. You have to be careful with the stems to make sure that they're fully ripe and not introducing astringent tannins or overly green flavors into the final wine. Um, but again, whole cluster is something that will appear on labels sometimes and is common to the natural wine movement as a whole. Then within whole cluster, we also have our carbonic maceration. Now, I promise the carbonic maceration episode is coming at some point. Don't know yes. exactly when yet. It'll come in fall. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we could do it for um, Beaujolais Day or Beaujolais New Beaujolais. That was what I was thinking. Yeah. So carbonic maceration, though, in very brief terms, is a fermentation that happens within the grape berries themselves as a anaerobic process. So it makes a wine and it has to be whole cluster in order to do a carbonic maceration it makes it taste like bubble gum yes so part of the reason for this is it gives a very light very approachable very fruity kind of almost overly fruity to some people flavor profile that lines up very well with a lot of natural wines and what they're going for so to finish off, we have Surly. We have talked about Surly in the past, but uh, as a brief summary again, basically this just means aging a wine on the lees, which are spent yeast cells left over from the fermentation process. They are dead yeast that then kind of break down, tend to give bready pastry-like aromas to a wine. Much more which common, are delicious, yes, much more way. common for white wines than red wines in general, but kind of tend to be used across the board in and, natural wines. And very common for one other thing that may not always be considered a natural wine, but certainly does have some enthusiasm is actually sparkling wines done with method ancestral. That's mm -hmm. also considered a natural wine since they aren't adding anything to it in order to give it bubbles. It's just fermenting in the bottle in order to give it that much more delicate light fizz mm -hmm. yeah michael's talking about pet nats if you yes. if you have not heard of them petit naturel is the full term but pet nat is what's commonly used in the english-speaking world and it's like michael said this is a very old style of winemaking kind of the pre-champagne sparkling wine method 
And these are wines that have the lees in the bottle itself. They don't disgorge these wines. So there will be sediment. It will be a little bit cloudy, but it's supposed to be like that. So don't freak out too much. Speaking of wines that might not be natural wines, but are still commonly found under the heading of natural wines, are skin contact white wines, Mm -hmm. or more colloquially known as orange wines. Yes. Now, we've talked a lot about the practices uh, within the vineyard, at least in summary, and also specifically in the realms of how the wine is going to be treated once it is harvested. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what can we expect from all these different elements, the natural yeast, the, the lack of intervention, the spontaneous fermentation, as well as the handling of aging vessels? What flavor profiles might we expect? So... That's kind of a hard thing to nail down because one of the features of natural wine is it is extremely diverse. Full disclosure, Michael and I did a little bit of extracurricular research where we went to a local shop, uh, Celadora, here in Richmond. and Suffering during our research. Uh, terrible time, let Just me tell the you. Worst. No, it, the staff was actually very friendly. We tried um, five four or five wines i believe i tried four you tried five right yeah we did Um, not drink five glasses no they they were kind enough to allow us to sample them yes uh before we purchased our glasses yes so um and and, we tried eight no (laughs) (laughs) No, these wines were very diverse and every wine was completely different than the rest of them so it's kind of hard to pare down And again, that is a feature. That's what a lot of people like about natural wines. But you can kind of find some common themes among natural wines. So we have acidic flavors as kind of, I think, the most primary one. And I noticed this even in the reds that we drank were much more perceptibly acidic than a lot of conventional reds are. So when you think about acidity, think um, malic acid, lactic acid. So either that very tart apple crunchy kind of thing or lactic acid obviously lactase milk that more milky kind of acidic flavor profile a lot of natural wines again from the surly aging can also be very yeasty so again that translates into bready doughy characteristics some pastry characteristics particularly again in the white wines cidery flavors are very prominent in natural wine actually a couple of the ones that we tried at celadora were very cidery some one of them was actually bordering on kombucha like i personally am not a fan (laughs) of kombucha overall i I do happen to like kombucha but i have a different history with it than you do yeah my parents actually used to brew kombucha way before it became popular and they had a scoby that was the size of a continent and so that stuff was funky and uh, some natural wines definitely kind of go more in that direction. Um, but cidery, I mean, think cider. If you've had hard cider before, that very um, crisp, but also still a little bit wild. If you've had the right kind of cider, that kind of flavor profile is very common, particularly, again, among the whites of natural wines. Then we get into funky. Funky can be a lot of things. A lot of time, it's a flaw, in my opinion, that's being excused away by just trying to call it funky and avoid calling your wine flawed so you can still sell it. But that can be things like Britannomyces. Again, as a reminder, Britannomyces is a bacteria that produces 
sweaty barnyardy band-aid characteristics and again in restrained amounts it's actually very nice for me personally i can handle brett but uh natural wines sometimes go a little overboard with the brett you can also find again those kind of kombucha like flavors that almost um stank i guess for lack of a better Mm -hmm. way of putting it again not necessarily to disparage the wines but just something more wild more more untamed and a little unconventional for what we expect a bit more farm smell yes yes farm smell that's a good way of putting it and then uh to just reinforce glau glau which again is that very fresh early drinking table wine kind of wine so thank you so much to celadora wines You can find Celadora Wines. They are typically going to be open from the hours of 3 to 9 at the very least. They're located on North Lombardi Street in Richmond. So if you guys want to check them out, please do so. Just be aware that they do reserve tables. Yes. Uh, They were kind enough to give us a table. We we did not know that. We didn't know that walking in. And so they had like their regular tables. And then I I kind of show up and I'm like, hey, um... I don't have a reservation. Do you guys do reservations? She's like, oh, you don't do reservations. And then they they went out of their way in order to let us have this little Mm -hmm. tiny mirror table. I I felt like Alan Rickman in Bottle Shock sitting at the little table during the tasting. Um, (laughs) That's actually really accurate. Yeah, that's that's what I was saying. I think they just Bottle Shocked us, Gabe. Um, They were very accommodating, though. I have no complaints. Oh, and the recommendations were fantastic yeah uh, so thank you thank you to celadora wines mm-hmm. um i look forward to being able to visit again and try some more things yes uh they do have bottles both available for purchase mm-hmm. as well as for purchase with an opening uh, or a bottling fee and they also have some per by by the glass mm-hmm. uh wines that you can purchase yep. as well I would also like to thank, for my own research purposes, uh, Alice Firing, who is very prominent in the natural wine world. She has a book called Natural Wine for the People, which is a a book that I actually got from an event that I went to in very, very early 2020 before the pandemic really started to kick in. Got to meet her, actually got to have dinner with her. Very kind, very nice, very interesting to talk to. And her book, Natural Wine for the People, again, very good introduction and overview of kind of the philosophy of natural wine, what natural wine is. I don't agree with her on everything. I don't agree with her on all of her assertions about particularly conventional wines. However, I do respect her trailblazing for natural wine and helping popularize it. And I do really appreciate the advocacy that she does for, again, that more sustainable and conscientious method of approaching wine. So now I hope that you guys have a little bit more understanding as to what natural wine is, as well as some of the elements that compose the methodology and the culture that is surrounding it. If you do have any questions, we would love to discuss it with you. Uh, If you would like to talk more about what happens in the vineyard, as well as within the uh, cellar in particular, please do give us that message at LaidbackLush on Instagram and Twitter. Keep up with us. We're going to be doing more and more recordings as time goes on. We're very grateful for the small following that we do currently have. In our next episode, we are going to be talking more about our personal opinions on both the methods as well as the culture surrounding natural wine. This is an impromptu decision, fun fact. Yeah. We just looked at the recording time. We're like, we're already almost an hour in. Yeah, <laughs> um, and we don't we don't want to completely zap you for the day because yeah. we know that this was kind of a dense episode. Mm-hmm. But we're going to be talking about that in the next episode. We hope to see you there. And as always, thank you guys so much. And cheers. 
Cheers.